Chapter 5 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 5. Wednesday morning, Washington's birthday, McTeague rose very early and shaved himself. Besides the six mournful concertina airs, the dentist knew one song. Whenever he shaved, he sung this song, never at any other time. His voice was a bellowing roar, enough to make the window sashes rattle. Just now he woke up all the lodgers in his hall with it. It was a lamentable wail. No one to love. None to caress. Left all alone in this world's wilderness. As he paused to strop his razor, Marcus came into his room half-dressed, a startling phantom in red flannels. Marcus often ran back and forth between his room and the dentist's parlors in all sorts of undress. Old Miss Baker had seen him thus several times through her half-open door as she sat in her room listening and waiting. The old dressmaker was shocked out of all expression. She was outraged, offended, pursing her lips, putting up her head. She talked of complaining to the landlady. "'And Mr. Granis right next door, too,' You can understand how trying it is for both of us. She would come out in the hall after one of these apparitions, her little false curls shaking, talking loud and shrill to anyone in reach of her voice. Well, Marcus would shout, shut your door then, if you don't want to see. Look out now, here I come again. Not even a porous plaster on me this time. On this Wednesday morning, Marcus called McTeague out into the hall, to the head of the stairs that led down to the street door. "'Come and listen to Maria, Mac,' said he. Maria sat on the next to the lowest step, her chin propped by her two fists. The red-headed Polish Jew, the ragman Zerkow, stood in the doorway. He was talking eagerly. "'Now, just once more, Maria,' he was saying. "'Tell it to us just once more.' Maria's voice came up the stairway in a monotone. Marcus and McTeague caught a phrase from time to time. "'There were more than a hundred pieces, and every one of them gold.' Just that punch-bowl was worth a fortune. Thick, fat, red gold. "'Get on to that, will you?' observed Marcus. "'The old skin has got her started on the plate. Ain't they a pair for you?' "'And it rang like bells, didn't it?' prompted Zerkow. "'Sweeter than church bells, and clearer. "'Ah, sweeter than bells. Wasn't that punch-bowl awful heavy? "'All you could do to lift it.' "'I know. Oh, I know,' answered Zerkow, clawing at his lips. Where did it all go to? Where did it go? Maria shook her head. It's gone, anyhow. Ah, gone, gone. Think of it. The punch bowl gone, and the engraved ladle, and the plates and goblets. What a sight it must have been, all heaped together. It was a wonderful sight. Yes, wonderful, it must have been. On the lower steps of that cheap flat, the Mexican woman and the red-haired Polish Jew mused long over that vanished half-mythical gold plate. Marcus and the dentist spent Washington's birthday across the bay. The journey over was one long agony to McTeague. He shook with a formless, uncertain dread. A dozen times he would have turned back had not Marcus been with him. The stolid giant was as nervous as a schoolboy. He fancied that his call upon Miss Sipa was an outrageous affront. She would freeze him with a stare. He would be shown the door, would be ejected, disgraced. As they got off the local train at B Street Station, they suddenly collided with the whole tribe of Sipas, the mother, father, three children, 
and Trina, equipped for one of their eternal picnics. They were to go to Schwetzen Park, within walking distance of the station. They were grouped about four lunch baskets. One of the children, a little boy, held a black greyhound by a rope around its neck. Trina wore a blue cloth skirt, a striped shirtwaist, and a white sailor. About her round waist was a belt of imitation alligator skin. At once Mrs. Sipa began to talk to Marcus. He had written of their coming, but the picnic had been decided upon after the arrival of his letter. Mrs. Sipa explained this to him. She was an immense old lady with a pink face and wonderful hair, absolutely white. The Sipas were a German-Swiss family. "'We go to der Park, Schwetzen Park, mit all dem children, a little excursion, eh not so? We breathe der freshest air, a celebration, a picnic bay der seashore on. Ach, that will be so gay, ah?' "'You bet it will. It'll be out of sight.' cried Marcus, enthusiastic in an instant. "'This is my friend Dr. McTeague I wrote you about, Mrs. Sipa.' "'Ach, der doctor!' cried Mrs. Sipa. McTeague was presented, shaking hands gravely as Marcus shouldered him from one to the other. Mr. Sipa was a little man of a military aspect, full of importance, taking himself very seriously. He was a member of a rifle team. Over his shoulder was slung a Springfield rifle, while his breast was decorated by five bronze medals. Trina was delighted. McTeague was dumbfounded. She appeared positively glad to see him. "'How do you do, Dr. McTeague?' she said, smiling at him and shaking his hand. "'It's nice to see you again. Look, see how fine my filling is.' She lifted a corner of her lip and showed him the clumsy gold bridge. Meanwhile, Mr. Sipa toiled and perspired. Upon him devolved the responsibility of the excursion. He seemed to consider it a matter of vast importance, a veritable expedition." August, he shouted to the little boy with the black greyhound. You will der hound un basket number three carry, der turvens, he added, calling to the two smallest boys, who were dressed exactly alike. Will relief one another mit der campstool un basket number four. Dat is comprehend, hey? When we make der start, you children will in der advance march. Dat is your orders. But we do not start, he exclaimed excitedly. We remain. A got Selina, who does not arrive. Selina, it appeared, was a niece of Mrs. Sipa's. They were on the point of starting without her when she suddenly arrived, very much out of breath. She was a slender, unhealthy-looking girl who overworked herself giving lessons in hand-painting at twenty-five cents an hour. McTeague was presented. They all began to talk at once, filling the little station-house with a confusion of tongues. "'Attention!' cried Mr. Sipa his gold-headed cane in one hand, his Springfield in the other. Attention! We depart! The four little boys moved off ahead. The greyhound suddenly began to bark and tug at his leash. The others picked up their bundles. Vorwarts! shouted Mr. Sipa, waving his rifle and assuming the attitude of a lieutenant of infantry leading a charge. The party set off down the railroad track. Mrs. Sipa walked with her husband, who constantly left her side to shout an order up and down the line. Marcus followed with Selina. McTeague found himself with Trina at the end of the procession. "'We go off on these picnics almost every week,' said Trina, by way of a beginning. "'And almost every holiday, too. It is a custom.' "'Yes, yes, a custom,' answered McTeague, nodding. "'A custom. That's the word. "'Don't you think these picnics are fine fun, Dr. McTeague?' she continued. "'You take your lunch. You leave the dirty city all day. You race about in the open air, and when lunchtime comes, oh, aren't you hungry?' and the woods and the grass smell so fine. I don't know, Miss Sipa, 
he answered, keeping his eyes fixed on the ground between the rails. I never went on a picnic. Never went on a picnic, she cried, astonished. Oh, you'll see what fun we'll have. In the morning father and the children dig clams in the mud by the shore, and we bake them, and, oh, there's thousands of things to do. Once I went sailing on the bay, said McTeague. It was in a tugboat. We fished off the heads. I caught three codfishes. I'm afraid to go out on the bay, answered Trina, shaking her head. Sailboats tip over so easy. A cousin of mine, Selina's brother, was drowned one decoration day. They never found his body. Can you swim, Dr. McTeague? I used to at the mine. At the mine? Oh, yes, I remember. Marcus told me you were a miner once. I was a carboy. All the carboys used to swim in the reservoir by the ditch every Thursday evening. One of them was bit by a rattlesnake once while he was dressing. He was a Frenchman named Andrew. He swelled up and began to twitch. Oh, how I hate snakes. They're so crawly and graceful, but just the same, I like to watch them. You know that drugstore over in town that has a showcase full of live ones? We killed the rattler with a cart whip. How far do you think you could swim? Did you ever try? Do you think you could swim a mile? A mile? I don't know. I never tried. I guess I could. I can swim a little. Sometimes we all go out to the crystal baths. The crystal baths, huh? Can you swim across the tank? Oh, I can swim all right, as long as Papa holds my chin up. Soon as he takes his hand away, down I go. Don't you hate to get water in your ears? Bathing's good for you. If the water's too warm, it isn't. It weakens you. Mr. Sipa came running down the tracks, waving his cane. To one side, he shouted, motioning them off the track. Der drain gomes. A local passenger train was just passing B Street Station, some quarter of a mile behind them. The party stood to one side to let it pass. Marcus put a nickel and two crossed pins upon the rail and waved his hat to the passengers as the train roared past. The children shouted shrilly. When the train was gone, they all rushed to see the nickel and the crossed pins. The nickel had been jolted off, but the pins had been flattened out so that they bore a faint resemblance to opened scissors. A great contention arose among the children for the possession of these scissors. Mr. Sipa was obliged to intervene. He reflected gravely. It was a matter of tremendous moment. The whole party halted, awaiting his decision. "'Attend now,' he suddenly exclaimed. "'It will not be so soon.' At der end of der day, ven we shall have home gekommen, den will it be a judge, eh? A reward of merit to him who der best behaves. It is an order. Vorwarts. That was a Sacramento train, said Marcus to Selina as they started off. It was, for a fact. I know a girl in Sacramento, Trina told McTeague. She's forewoman in a glove store, and she's got consumption. I was in Sacramento once, observed McTeague nearly eight years ago. Is it a nice place? As nice as San Francisco? It's hot. I practiced there for a while. I like San Francisco, said Trina, looking across the bay to where the city piled itself upon its hills. So do I, answered McTeague. Do you like it better than living over here? Oh, sure. I wish we lived in the city. If you want to go across for anything, it takes up the whole day. Yes, yes, the whole day, almost. Do you know many people in the city? Do you know anybody named Olbermann? That's my uncle. He has a wholesale toy store in the mission. They say he's awful rich. No, I don't know him. His stepdaughter wants to be a nun. Just fancy, 
and Mr. Olbermann won't have it. He says it would be just like bearing his child. Yes, she wants to enter the convent of the Sacred Heart. Are you a Catholic, Dr. McTeague? No, no, I... Papa is a Catholic. He goes to Mass on the feast days once in a while, but Mama's a Lutheran. The Catholics are trying to get control of the schools, observed McTeague, suddenly remembering one of Marcus's political tirades. That's what Cousin Mark says. We are going to send the twins to the kindergarten next month. What's the kindergarten? Oh, they teach them to make things out of straw and toothpicks. Kind of a play place to keep them off the street. There's one up on Sacramento Street, not far from Polk Street. I saw the sign. I know where. Why, Selina used to play the piano there. Does she play the piano? Oh, you ought to hear her. She plays fine. Selina's very accomplished. She paints, too. I can play on the concertina. Oh, can you? I wish you'd brought it along. Next time you will. I hope you'll come often on our picnics. You'll see what fun we'll have. Fine day for a picnic, ain't it? There ain't a cloud. That's so, exclaimed Trina, looking up. Not a single cloud. Oh, yes, there is one, just over Telegraph Hill. That's smoke. No, it's a cloud. Smoke isn't white that way. Tis a cloud. I knew I was right. I never say a thing unless I'm pretty sure. It looks like a dog's head. Don't it? Isn't Marcus fond of dogs? He got a new dog last week, a setter. Did he? Yes. He and I took a lot of dogs from his hospital out for a walk to the cliff house last Sunday, but we had to walk all the way home because they wouldn't follow. You've been out to the cliff house? Not for a long time. We had a picnic there one fourth of July, but it rained. Don't you love the ocean? Yes, yes, I like it pretty well. Oh, I'd like to go off in one of those big sailing ships, just away and away and away, anywhere. They're different from a little yacht. I'd love to travel. Sure, so would I. Papa and Mama came over in a sailing ship. They were twenty-one days. Mama's uncle used to be a sailor. He was captain of a steamer on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Halt! shouted Mr. Sipa, brandishing his rifle. They had arrived at the gates of the park. All at once McTeague turned cold. He had only a quarter in his pocket. What was he expected to do? Pay for the whole party, or for Trina and himself, or merely buy his own ticket? And even in this latter case, would a quarter be enough? He lost his wits, rolling his eyes helplessly. Then it occurred to him to feign a great abstraction, pretending not to know that the time was come to pay. He looked intently up and down the tracks. Perhaps a train was coming. Here we are, cried Trina, as they came up to the rest of the party, crowded about the entrance. Yes, yes, observed McTeague, his head in the air. Give me four bits, Mac, said Marcus, coming up. Here's where we shell out. I, I, I only got a quarter, mumbled the dentist, miserably. He felt that he had ruined himself forever with Trina. What was the use of trying to win her? Destiny was against him. I only got a quarter, he stammered. He was on the point of adding that he would not go in the park. That seemed to be the only alternative. Oh, all right, said Marcus easily. I'll pay for you, and you can square with me when we go home. They filed into the park, Mr. Sipa counting them off as they entered. Ah, said Trina, with a long breath, as she and McTeague pushed through the wicket. Here we are once more, doctor. She had not appeared to notice McTeague's embarrassment. The difficulty had been tided over somehow. Once more McTeague felt himself saved. To der beach, 
shouted Mr. Sipa. They had checked their baskets at the peanut stand. The whole party trooped down to the seashore. The greyhound was turned loose. The children raced on ahead. From one of the larger parcels, Mrs. Sipa had drawn forth a small tin steamboat, Auguste's birthday present, a gaudy little toy which could be steamed up and navigated by means of an alcohol lamp. Her trial trip was to be made this morning. "'Gimme it, gimme it,' shouted Auguste, dancing around his father. "'Not so, not so,' cried Mr. Sipa, bearing it aloft. "'I must first their experiment make.' "'No, no,' wailed Auguste. "'I want to play with it.' "'Obey!' thundered Mr. Sipa. Auguste subsided. A little jetty ran part of the way into the water. Here, after a careful study of the directions printed on the cover of the box, Mr. Sipa began to fire the little boat. "'I want to put it in the water,' cried Auguste. "'Stand back!' shouted his parent. "'You do not know so well as me. There is danger. Without attention he will explode.' "'I want to play with it.' protested Auguste, beginning to cry. "'Ach, so, you cry, bebe,' vociferated Mr. Sipa. "Mummer," addressing Mrs. Sipa, "'he will so soon be gewipped, eh?' "'I want my boat," screamed Auguste, dancing. "'Silence!' roared Mr. Sipa. The little boat began to hiss and smoke. "'So,' observed the father, "'he commence. Attention! I put him in der water.' He was very excited." The perspiration dripped from the back of his neck. The little boat was launched. It hissed more furiously than ever. Clouds of steam rolled from it, but it refused to move. "'You don't know how she works,' sobbed Auguste. "'I know more so much as der grossest little fool as you,' cried Mr. Sipa fiercely, his face purple. "'You must give it sh-shove,' exclaimed the boy. "'Then he explode, idiot!' shouted his father." All at once the boiler of the steamer blew up with a sharp crack. The little tin toy turned over and sank out of sight before anyone could interfere. "'Ah! Yah! Yah!' yelled Auguste. "'It's gone!' Instantly Mr. Sipa boxed his ears. There was a lamentable scene. Auguste rent the air with his outcries. His father shook him till his boots danced on the jetty, shouting into his face, "'Ach! Idiot! Ach! Imbecile!' Ach, miserable! I told you he explode. Stop your cry. Stop. It is an order. Do you wish I drown you in der water, eh? Speak. Silence, bebe. Mama, where is mine stick? He will der grossest whipping ever of his life receive. Little by little the boy subsided, swallowing his sobs, knuckling his eyes, gazing ruefully at the spot where the boat had sunk. Dot is better so, commented Mr. Sipa finally releasing him. Next time, perhaps you will your father better believe. Now, no more. We will der glams gidig. Mommer, a fire. Ach, himmel. We have der freffer forgotten. The work of clam digging began at once, the little boys taking off their shoes and stockings. At first, Auguste refused to be comforted, and it was not until his father drove him into the water with his gold-headed cane that he consented to join the others, what a day that was for McTeague! What a never-to-be-forgotten day! He was with Trina constantly. They laughed together, she demurely, her lips closed tight, her little chin thrust out, her small pale nose, with its adorable little freckles, wrinkling. He roared with all the force of his lungs, his enormous mouth distended, 
striking sledgehammer blows upon his knee with his clenched fist. The lunch was delicious. Trina and her mother made a clam chowder that melted in one's mouth. The lunch baskets were emptied. The party were fully two hours eating. There were huge loaves of rye bread full of grains of chickweed. There were wienerwurst and frankfurter sausages. There was unsalted butter. There were pretzels. There was cold underdone chicken, which one ate in slices, plastered with a wonderful kind of mustard that did not sting. There were dried apples that gave Mr. Sipa the hiccups. There were a dozen bottles of beer, and, last of all, a crowning achievement, a marvelous gota truffle. After lunch came tobacco. Stuffed to the eyes, McTeague drowsed over his pipe, prone on his back in the sun, while Trina, Mrs. Sipa, and Selina washed the dishes. In the afternoon, Mr. Sipa disappeared. They heard the reports of his rifle on the range. The others swarmed over the park, now around the swings, now in the casino, now in the museum, now invading the merry-go-round. At half-past five o'clock, Mr. Sipa marshaled the party together. It was time to return home. The family insisted that Marcus and McTeague should take supper with them at their home and should stay overnight. Mrs. Sipa argued they could get no decent supper if they went back to the city at that hour. They could catch an early morning boat and reach their business in good time. The two friends accepted. The Sipas lived in a little box of a house at the foot of B Street, the first house to the right as one went up from the station. It was two stories high, with a funny red mansard roof of oval slates. The interior was cut up into innumerable tiny rooms, some of them so small as to be hardly better than sleeping closets. In the backyard was a contrivance for pumping water from the cistern that interested McTeague at once. It was a dog wheel, a huge revolving box in which the unhappy black greyhound spent most of his waking hours. It was his kennel. He slept in it. From time to time during the day Mrs. Sipa appeared on the back doorstep, crying shrilly, Hoop! Hoop! She threw lumps of coal at him, waking him to his work. They were all very tired and went to bed early. After great discussion, it was decided that Marcus would sleep upon the lounge in the front parlor. Trina would sleep with Auguste, giving up her room to McTeague. Selina went to her home, a block or so above the Sipas. At nine o'clock, Mr. Sipa showed McTeague to his room and left him to himself with a newly lighted candle. For a long time after Mr. Sipa had gone, McTeague stood motionless in the middle of the room, his elbows pressed close to his sides, looking obliquely from the corners of his eyes. He hardly dared to move. He was in Trina's room. It was an ordinary little room. A clean white matting was on the floor. Gray paper, spotted with pink and green flowers, covered the walls. In one corner, under a white netting, was a little bed, the woodwork gaily painted with knots of bright flowers. Near it, against the wall, was a black walnut bureau. A work table with spiral legs stood by the window, which was hung with a green and gold window curtain. Opposite the window, the closet door stood ajar, while in the corner across from the bed was a tiny washstand with two clean towels. And that was all. But it was Trina's room. McTeague was in his lady's bower. It seemed to him a little nest, intimate, discreet. He felt hideously out of place. He was an intruder, he with his enormous feet, his colossal bones, his crude, brutal gestures. The mere weight of his limbs, he was sure, would crush the little bedstead like an eggshell. Then, as this first sensation wore off, he began to feel the charm of the little chamber. It was as though Trina were close by, but invisible. McTeague felt all the delight of her presence without the embarrassment that usually accompanied it. He was near to her, 
nearer than he had ever been before. He saw into her daily life, her little ways and manners, her habits, her very thoughts. And was there not in the air of that room a certain faint perfume that he knew, that recalled her to his mind with marvelous vividness? As he put the candle down upon the bureau, he saw her hairbrush lying there. Instantly he picked it up, and without knowing why, held it to his face. With what a delicious odor was it redolent! That heavy, enervating odor of her hair, her wonderful, royal hair. The smell of that little hairbrush was talismanic. He had but to close his eyes to see her as distinctly as in a mirror. He saw her tiny, round figure, dressed all in black. For, curiously enough, it was his very first impression of Trina that came back to him now, not the Trina of the later occasions, not the Trina of the blue cloth skirt and white sailor. He saw her as he had seen her the day that Marcus had introduced them, saw her pale round face, her narrow, half-open eyes, blue like the eyes of a baby, her tiny, pale ears, suggestive of anemia, the freckles across the bridge of her nose, her pale lips, the tiara of royal black hair, and, above all, the delicious poise of the head, tipped back as though by the weight of all that hair, the poise that thrust out her chin a little, with the movement that was so confiding, so innocent, so nearly infantile. McTeague went softly about the room from one object to another, beholding Trina in everything he touched or looked at. He came at last to the closet door. It was ajar. He opened it wide, and paused upon the threshold. Trina's clothes were hanging there, skirts and waists, jackets and stiff white petticoats. What a vision! For an instant McTeague caught his breath, spellbound. If he had suddenly discovered Trina herself there, smiling at him, holding out her hands, he could hardly have been more overcome. Instantly he recognized the black dress she had worn on that famous first day. There it was, the little jacket she had carried over her arm the day he had terrified her with his blundering declaration. And still others, and others, a whole group of Trinas faced him there. He went farther into the closet, touching the clothes gingerly, stroking them softly with his huge leathern palms. As he stirred them, a delicate perfume disengaged itself from the folds. Ah, that exquisite feminine odor! It was not only her hair now, it was Trina herself, her mouth, her hands, her neck, the indescribably sweet, fleshly aroma that was a part of her, pure and clean, and redolent of youth and freshness. All at once, seized with an unreasoned impulse, McTeague opened his huge arms and gathered the little garments close to him, plunging his face deep amongst them, savoring their delicious odor with long breaths of luxury and supreme content. The picnic at Schwetzen Park decided matters. McTeague began to call on Trina regularly Sunday and Wednesday afternoons. He took Marcus Schuller's place. Sometimes Marcus accompanied him, but it was generally to meet Selina by appointments at the Sepas house. But Marcus made the most of his renunciation of his cousin. He remembered his pose from time to time. He made McTeague unhappy and bewildered by wringing his hand, by venting sighs that seemed to tear his heart out, or by giving evidences of an infinite melancholy. "'What is my life?' he would exclaim. "'What is left for me? Nothing, by damn!' And when McTeague would attempt a remonstrance, he would cry, "'Never mind, old man. Never mind me. Go. Be happy. I forgive you.' "'Forgive what?' McTeague was all at sea, was harassed with the thought of some shadowy, irreparable injury he had done his friend. "'Oh, don't think of me,' Marcus would exclaim at other times, even when Trina was by. "'Don't think of me. I don't count any more. I ain't in it.' 
Marcus seemed to take great pleasure in contemplating the wreck of his life. There is no doubt he enjoyed himself hugely during these days. The Sipas were at first puzzled as well over this change of front. "'Trina has den a new young man,' cried Mr. Sipa. First shoulder, now der doctor, eh? What de devil, I say?' Weeks passed. February went. March came in very rainy, putting a stop to all their picnics and Sunday excursions. One Wednesday afternoon, in the second week in March, McTeague came over to call on Trina, bringing his concertina with him, as was his custom nowadays. As he got off the train at the station, he was surprised to find Trina waiting for him. "'This is the first day it hasn't rained in weeks,' she explained, "'and I thought it would be nice to walk.' "'Sure, sure,' assented McTeague. B Street Station was nothing more than a little shed. There was no ticket office, nothing but a couple of whittled and carven benches. It was built close to the railroad tracks, just across which was the dirty, muddy shore of San Francisco Bay. About a quarter of a mile back from the station was the edge of the town of Oakland. Between the station and the first houses of the town lay immense salt flats, here and there broken by winding streams of black water. They were covered with a growth of wiry grass, strangely discolored in places by enormous stains of orange-yellow. Near the station, a bit of fence painted with a cigar advertisement reeled over into the mud, while under its lee lay an abandoned gravel wagon with dished wheels. The station was connected with the town by the extension of B Street, which struck across the flats geometrically straight, a file of tall poles with intervening wires marching along with it. At the station, these were headed by an iron electric light pole that, with its supports and outriggers, looked for all the world like an immense grasshopper on its hind legs. Across the flats, at the fringe of the town, were the dump heaps, the figures of a few Chinese rag-pickers moving over them. Far to the left, the view was shut off by the immense red-brown drum of the gas-works. To the right, it was bounded by the chimneys and workshops of an iron foundry. Across the railroad tracks, to seaward, one saw the long stretch of black mud-bank left bare by the tide, which was far out, nearly half a mile. Clouds of seagulls were forever rising and settling upon this mud-bank. A wrecked and abandoned wharf crawled over it on tottering legs. Close in, an old sailboat lay canted on her bilge. But farther on, across the yellow waters of the bay, beyond Goat Island, lay San Francisco, a blue line of hills, rugged with roofs and spires. Far to the westward opened the Golden Gate, a bleak cutting in the sand hills, through which one caught a glimpse of the open Pacific. The station at B Street was solitary. No trains passed at this hour, except the distant rag-pickers. Not a soul was in sight. The wind blew strong, carrying with it the mingled smell of salt, of tar, of dead seaweed, and of bilge. The sky hung low and brown. At long intervals a few drops of rain fell. Near the station, Trina and McTeague sat on the roadbed of the tracks, at the edge of the mud-bank, making the most out of the landscape, enjoying the open air, the salt marshes, and the sight of the distant water. From time to time McTeague played his six mournful airs upon his concertina. After a while they began walking up and down the tracks, McTeague talking about his profession, Trina listening, very interested and absorbed, trying to understand. For pulling the roots of the upper molars we use the cowhorn forceps, continued the dentist, monotonously. We get the inside beak over the palatal roots and the cowhorn beak over the buccal roots. That's the roots on the outside, you see. Then we close the forceps, and that breaks right through the alveolus. That's the part of the socket in the jaw, you understand. 
At another moment he told her of his one unsatisfied desire. Some day I'm going to have a big gilded tooth outside my window for a sign. Those big gold teeth are beautiful, beautiful. Only they cost so much, I can't afford one just now. Oh, it's raining, suddenly exclaimed Trina, holding out her palm. They turned back and reached the station in a drizzle. The afternoon was closing in, dark and rainy. The tide was coming back, talking and lapping for miles along the mud bank. Far off across the flats, at the edge of the town, an electric car went by, stringing out a long row of diamond sparks on the overhead wires. "'Say, Miss Trina,' said McTeague, after a while, "'what's the good of waiting any longer? Why can't us two get married?' Trina still shook her head, saying no instinctively, in spite of herself. "'Why not?' persisted McTeague. "'Don't you like me well enough?' "'Yes.' "'Then why not?' "'Because.' "'Ah, come on,' he said. But Trina still shook her head. "'Ah, come on,' urged McTeague. He could think of nothing else to say, repeating the same phrase over and over again to all her refusals. "'Ah, come on! Ah, come on!' Suddenly he took her in his enormous arms, crushing down her struggle with his immense strength. Then Trina gave up, all in an instant, turning her head to his. They kissed each other, grossly, full in the mouth. A roar and a jarring of the earth suddenly grew near and passed them in a reek of steam and hot air. It was the overland with its flaming headlight on its way across the continent. The passage of the train startled them both. Trina struggled to free herself from McTeague. Oh, please, please, she pleaded, on the point of tears. McTeague released her, but in that moment a slight, a barely perceptible revulsion of feeling had taken place in him. The instant that Trina gave up, the instant she allowed him to kiss her, he thought less of her. She was not so desirable, after all. But this reaction was so faint, so subtle, so intangible, that in another moment he had doubted its occurrence. Yet afterward it returned. Was there not something gone from Trina now? Was he not disappointed in her for doing the very thing for which he had longed? Was Trina the submissive, the compliant, the attainable just the same, just as delicate and adorable as Trina the inaccessible? Perhaps he dimly saw that this must be so, that it belonged to the changeless order of things, the man desiring the woman only for what she withholds, the woman worshipping the man for that which she yields up to him. With each concession gained, the man's desire cools. With every surrender made, the woman's adoration increases. But why should it be so? Trina wrenched herself free and drew back from McTeague, her little chin quivering, her face, even to the lobes of her pale ears, flushed scarlet, her narrow blue eyes brimming. Suddenly she put her head between her hands and began to sob. "'Say, say, Miss Trina, listen. Listen here, Miss Trina,' cried McTeague, coming forward a step. "'Oh, don't,' she gasped, shrinking. "'I must go home,' she cried, springing to her feet. "'It's late. I must. I must. Don't come with me, please. Oh, I'm so, so—' She could not find any words. "'Let me go alone,' she went on. You may, you come Sunday. Goodbye. Goodbye, said McTeague, his head in a whirl at this sudden, unaccountable change. Can't I kiss you again? But Trina was firm now. When it came to his pleading, a mere matter of words, she was strong enough. No, no, you must not, she exclaimed with energy. She was gone in another instant. The dentist, stunned, bewildered, gazed stupidly after her as she ran up the extension of B Street through the rain.
But suddenly a great joy took possession of him. He had won her. Trina was to be for him, after all. An enormous smile distended his thick lips. His eyes grew wide and flashed, and he drew his breath quickly, striking his mallet-like fist upon his knee and exclaiming under his breath, "'I got her, by God! I got her, by God!' At the same time he thought better of himself. His self-respect increased enormously. The man that could win Trina Sipa was a man of extraordinary ability. Trina burst in upon her mother while the latter was setting a mousetrap in the kitchen. "'Oh, Mama!' "'Eh, Trina? Ach, what has happened?' Trina told her in a breath. "'So soon?' was Mrs. Sipa's first comment. "'Eh, well, what you cry for, then?' "'I don't know.' wailed Trina, plucking at the end of her handkerchief. "'You loaf, der young doctor?' "'I don't know.' "'Well, what for you kiss him?' "'I don't know.' "'You don't know? You don't know? Where have your senses gone, Trina? You kiss der doctor. You cry, and you don't know. Is it Marcus, then?' "'No, it's not Cousin Mark.' "'Den it must be der doctor.' Trina made no answer. "'Eh? I—I I guess so.' You love him? I don't know. Mrs. Sipa set down the mousetrap with such violence that it sprung with a sharp snap. End of chapter 5